Welcome to Third Fridays, the monthly legal talk show from Lois LLC featuring attorney Christian Cisan. This is the original forum in which real attorneys discuss workers' compensation issues, share their opinions, and engage in colorful conversations. This show showcases diverse perspectives of attorneys handling workers' comp cases, including case law trends, practical litigation strategies, and hot topics. Here's your host, Christian Cisan. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the November 2022 edition of the Third Fridays podcast. I can't believe it's already November, but we're at the end of the year, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about a court of appeals case that has a very, I don't want to say tortured history, but uh, it's been going back and forth at the board level and the appellate division and now the court of appeals, and we're going to go in depth about each level and then talk about what we think is going to happen next. If anybody missed last month's episode, my guest was Noah Pollack. We talked about the onboard PAR process prior authorization request. And, you know, benefits, disadvantages, how are we looking five months into the process? And Noah had some very interesting insights on the benefits and disadvantages for all the stakeholders in um, that arena. But my guest today is uh, Jeremy Janis. Welcome to the show. Hi. So, Jeremy, I guess... Touching on that PAR process, you've had a lot of experience dealing with some of these requests that providers make and our clients' responses. What has been your experience or what what kind of takeaways do you have with this process you know, going forward? So a few things I've noticed. First of all, a lot of the doctors never end up responding uh, when the first level or the second level um, reviewer provides a response, meaning that there's no jurisdiction for the court or the medical director's office to actually review the request. What, how do you think that is? Because I, I, I agree, right? That the, the provider makes a request, it gets denied uh, at either level one or level two, and then it stops. Like, why, why do you think that's happening? I don't think that the doctors actually understand the process well. I think it, for a lot of them, it's easier to just submit a new request. And actually what I'm saying a lot is that they do end up submitting new requests over and over again. Uh, it's the same thing they used to do with the MD2s when they were just MD2s. Right, and I guess with the MD2s, how you bring that up, it makes me think about the people who are requesting reviews of those variance denials were claimant's attorneys, right? They were requesting review from the board or the law judge to talk about the denial, but that's not really an option, right? It's almost keeping the variance or the part out of the trial court and making the doctor have the onus of instruments. That's a that's an interesting look at it because if they're if you're right, if they're not in tune with the process, then they're probably just going to do nothing. Or or maybe file the same request that's gonna get denied. Yeah. I mean the other thing I've noticed as well is that uh, it's a little harder to file based on jurisdictional issues or issues related to the status of the case. There's drop-downs specifically um, for the administrators to use, and it doesn't specifically apply to certain situations in certain cases. Okay, yeah. Well, uh, before we get too deep into the PAR process, I guess we could have another uh, episode, uh, but uh, let's talk about this case. Uh, It's very, very interesting. The Court of Appeals came out with a decision on October 27th, so we're less than a month old. Uh, with this particular opinion, and uh, the case is Green versus Dutchess County. 
We have a very, very interesting procedural history. So before we get to the actual opinion from the Court of Appeals, let's start with going back 10 years. And we have a case that's established for the right leg. And in March of 2012, there's a finding of a 51% loss of wage earning capacity with a compensation rate of $500 per week, indicative of reduced earnings. Now, I know that many people who are discussing this opinion are going to go straight to the Court of Appeals and the Appellate Division and talk about the things that we're going to talk about. But I'm really interested actually at the outset as to how this right leg became an Elway claim. Like what type of leg injury do you think had to have happened to this uh, unfortunate claimant to get a loss of wage earning capacity award? I'm assuming it must have been something catastrophic, uh, maybe, maybe a machine hit the, uh, the claimant's leg, caused some kind of injury that really made it hard to walk. Right. That's definitely how it had to happen, right? Because usually it's going to be resolved in a scheduled loss of use. But the reason why I've talked about a reduced earnings rate is that he's working. Right. So what type of catastrophic injury makes a claimant eligible for LWEC, but then also says, well, you're working. It's very I just don't think many people are really talking about that aspect of this case. Right. They're almost juxtaposed differently where a right leg injury doesn't take the claimant out of work completely, but it's so catastrophic that it's not resolved in a schedule. Is that I don't know. I haven't seen that too often. I perhaps think it's just doing a sedentary type job when you return to work. That's possible. Yeah, that's a good point, right? If we have a light duty position that doesn't really involve him using the leg, maybe because he can't use the leg, uh, you know, because of the accident. Uh, so, okay. All that aside, six years go by. He's getting uh, that compensation rate. And a 51% LWEC really entitles the claimant to 350 weeks, right? So on March 12th, 2018, the claimant, who is now the decedent, unfortunately passes due to a cardiac arrhythmia, right? Now, cardiac arrhythmia is not established on this right leg claim. So it's very clear. No one's arguing that this cardiac arrhythmia is related to the accident. So in the normal course of events, what would happen if that were to occur in a claim today? He would just suspend benefits and be docked the claim. Right, because it has nothing to do with the accident. Uh, and it's, you know, even, I guess even if it did, the resulting benefits thereafter would be part of a death claim. Right? Right. It wouldn't be part of an accident claim. So. The law, at least it seemed at the time, was very clear that no benefits were going to be passed uh, to any uh, surviving beneficiaries. Interesting argument advanced by the claimant or the decedent's attorney here, where they ask for what? What are they asking for with respect to the remaining LWEC award? They're asking that it be uh, given to the claimant's son and essentially equivalent to a posthumous schedule loss use award. Yeah, it's, you know, the, the remainder of this LWEC award, they're asking for all of that money to, to be passed out. And 
despite all the case law that separates schedule offense and LAG, I have to think what what is going through there? Are they taking a shot in the dark? Because they have to know at this point that is it like what do we have to lose kind of thing? Do, what what do you think is going through their minds when they're making this argument before a law judge in June of 2018? Um, that they see the posthumous Lewis there, which is also uh, dictated under 153W as well. And they view it as, okay, if we're entitled to this award after death, the payment's found at, you know, MMI, perhaps it should be the decedent's uh, survivors should be entitled to the remainder of the Alwet board. Yeah, I mean, I guess, are they thinking that they have a winner at this, this point? Like, let, you know, let's put us ourselves four, four years ago and in June of 2018, do you think they're walking into this hearing thinking that they have a winner? Not necessarily. I think maybe perhaps they're looking at the the, uh, the bigger picture here and trying to say, if we are able to do this and are successful in arguing this, we're going to open up a door to a whole new classification or type of benefit. That's a good point, right? Like they, Their names would be forever etched in stone as the law firm that really uncovered this. Uh, I'm sure that would be... Uh, a big uh, feather in the cap for them. But what happens before the law judge in June of 2018 when they make this argument? Uh, the law judge finds that there's no awards, uh, or the, the decedent's uh, survivors are not entitled to awards past the death date. Right, so they, they lose. And for all intents and purposes, anybody in June of 2018 that would be looking at that decision is being like, that, that, that makes sense, right? That makes sense. Uh, there, there's really no provision that specifically allows for it. And it's not like Section 15 was crafted yesterday, right? They appeal. Claimant appeals to the board panel. And in January of 2019, what does the board panel say? They affirm the finding of the law judge. It's fairly simple, right? The, the board panel says this is not the type of award that gets passed down to a surviving beneficiary. It's not a posthumous schedule loss of use that you referenced earlier. And they make the clear distinction that an LWEC award is not a slew award, right? A slew award compensates someone for loss of function, whereas an LWEC award compensates someone for their earning capacity or lack thereof. So the difference in the award gets to the heart of how the board panel makes the decision in January of 2019. And I want to think about, you know, let's say we were you know, doing what we do on the employer side and we look at this case and we say, we want to appeal. Let's say that it was against us, right? Let's say the board panel finds in favor of the claimant there. What type of analyses are we providing to our client to determine whether we're even going to the third department the appellate division as the next step. First thing we usually do is a cost benefit. So, how much benefits would the decedent survivors be entitled to? Right. So, like, if we look at it, what would would we be going based on this type of case? No, because the claimant uh, is only entitled to thirty eight point eight weeks of benefits at that point, five hundred a week. So the the total value is less than twenty thousand. Yeah. I, I feel the same way. I, I guess it would depend on really some of the big picture things that you were talking about. Like, for instance, that particular client 
may look at you know, $20,000 exposure versus the cost of going to the appellate division and saying, well, we have to pay the 20000 and then if we go to the appellate division, that's another cost. And then what's our recovery? Even if we win, we have to litigate, uh, you know, reimbursement for the workers' compensation board and the section 151 fund. And so if we had to, we had, if we lost and we had to pay this, I feel like our client would need to be in that big picture mode that you were talking about. It's like, I don't want this to be a thing going forward. So it's a very interesting you know, interplay here where here you have this, uh, you know, at the time of death, a minor child who is now getting older and older. He's not, he, he's not just getting an award here. He's not getting the award. He'd be requesting an award. And we're now outside the fee uh, industry of a workers' compensation administration hearing where your the attorney's fee is based on the award received, right? He probably has to pay or maybe convince his his father's attorneys to do this for free, right? I mean, am I, I, I it just seems like at nineteen thousand, is that enough to go after it if you don't have the case law and you have to pay extra as so, a as so a minor child? Worth it, but I see it as the attorney was probably the one that's pushing this issue. It's possible, right? If, if it is a big picture thing, then maybe they are willing to do it for free. So if we think it's just okay, this is a normal case, the Health Division is going to shut it down. But in March of 2020, the case turns on its head because obviously, if it didn't turn on its head, we wouldn't be talking about it in the podcast. So in March of 2020, what does the Appellate Division do with respect to this case? They overturn the case and they state that LEC and schedule lawsuits are both. Uh, <laughs> sorry, uh, yeah, they're 15-3. Yeah, they're both uh, dealt with under 15-3 and they're therefore equivalent. Right, it's this weird situation where they say, well, schedule loss of use and loss and loss of wage earning capacity is the same because they're contained within the same section. And despite all the things that we've already talked about, how, how different they are, they, they use this idea of fairness. And they say that it would be so unfair that uh, a person who passes away would not be able to move an award to his surviving beneficiaries, but someone who has an LWAC award would not. And as soon as that happens, I feel like the... The wheels are turning to get that overturned. Once you're like going towards public policy, there's now a chance that this might not stick. But the weird thing is that they relate this idea of fairness to what happened in 2007. So a little bit for our listeners, uh, you know, uh, history and workers' compensation in New York. In 2007, a permanent partial disability now became a capped award. Whereas prior to 2007, if you had a permanent partial disability, you would have benefits forever. Whether that was a 1% partial disability or a 99% partial disability. And the legislature made uh, a very, very good decision 
to cap awards if you have a partial disability. And because they did that, the appellate division now looks at Elwick versus SLU, and they say, well, the legislature intended for both of them to be equal because they're making these Elwick awards capped. And once you make that jump, like I said, I, I think you're just setting yourselves up to be overturning. Almost, it almost just invites some analysis from someone else. Any thoughts on that, Jeremy? Uh, I believe so, because essentially they're trying to change public policy. They're interpreting it in a way that doesn't necessarily match up with what they intended to do in 2007. Yeah, you're, you're right. And like, so we get to, you know, the uh, April of 2021 decision from the Workers' Compensation Board, because basically appellate division, as they do time to time, basically say, no, Workers' Compensation Board, you got it wrong. So it comes back before the board in April of 2021. And, uh, you know, perhaps maybe it's just, you know, me and, and my, uh, uh, dislike for some of, of board of board of some of these board decisions that I look at this decision and almost chuckle a little bit because it says the board is constrained to find that claimant is entitled to an award in the amount of 38.8 weeks of compensation at the rate of $500 per week. So the board basically then uses the appellate division to rubber stamp whatever that decision has and directs carrier in this case to pay the $20,000 in exposure to uh, the, the decedent surviving uh, beneficiary. And I don't know, maybe it's just the note that I make because I'd like to talk about it, but I just specifically wanted to define constrained for our listeners. And the dictionary definition was appearing forced or overly controlled. And I guess when I look at, at the, uh, the writers of this board panel decision, I'm wondering, they're probably not happy about this, right? They're not, they're not excited that the appellate division has overturned their decision. So is it, is it something that maybe the board is worried about for future cases that, they that they're writing this opinion like this? The only time I usually see this language is when a law judge feels you get an overturned decision from the board panel, goes back to the law judge, and they feel like they have no choice but to do something, whether it's a fraud finding or something else. Right. So, yeah, that's a good analogy where basically, you know, maybe even at a lower level of administrative appeal, the law judge is overturned by the board panel, but then has to hear the case at the trial level again and has to implement a board panel decision that he or she doesn't necessarily agree with. So here we are in, in 2021, and we're thinking that as employers, we've now ha uh, been opened this can of worms that is going to create so much exposure down the line. But then we get to October of 2022. This is just last month, and the Court of Appeals reverses. And again, if they didn't reverse, we're not talking about this, right? We're probably just talking about this in 2021 and moving on with our lives. But 2022 hits and the Court of Appeals turns it on its head again. So anything about this Court of Appeals opinion, Jeremy, that you thought was particularly interesting or um, how can we summarize it for our listeners here today? So I thought the interesting thing is that they essentially state that the schedule issue was used the word as essentially step statutorily, like you know what rate of benefit the claimants are going to receive for a certain period of time. 
In contrast, uh, they specifically state that a non-schedule award does not entitle to the claimant to weekly compensation benefits at a specific rate over a set period because the rate and duration of benefits awarded by the board may change from one period to the next. Especially in a case like this where the claimant's receiving reduced earnings, it was specifically based on what the claimant was earning outside right. of the case. Right. Like, what if, for example, the decedent passes away in March of 2018? Right. But what typically happens in a reduced earnings case is the tax returns get filed at the end of the year and then a reduced earnings award is modified and then prospectively changed based on what uh, the claimant is earning at that time. Because at a 51 percent loss of wagering capacity, if, for example, the claimant started making more money, which, you know, from 2012 to 2018, most people will be making more money than they did six years ago. So in theory, it's interesting that the reduced earnings rate never changed, but it could have. And the board panel, or not the board panel, the Court of Appeals is looking at this from, like you said, a statutory construction point of view. Where they're saying that this non-schedule injury is dependent on the claimant's actual earnings and a continuance of disability. But a schedule loss of use is not, right? The schedule loss of use award is supposed to compensate you for loss of function. Right? The range of motion, any special considerations you have. And it's payable all at once, right? At the claimant's election. And so what if, because now, now the mad scientist starts thinking about all this, what if the claimant elected to have his schedule loss of use award payable weekly? Would that change things? Based on their analysis, I don't think it would, because I think what they were talking about is that we know the set amount the claimant is entitled to. Whether it's paid out over time or a lump sum is irrelevant to that. I agree too. I, I, you know, I'm mostly asking that question facetiously, but also, what claimant is going to take a weekly award, thinking about this six years in advance? No, no claimant's going to take that when they could have it all at once, tax-free, with no discount values attached to it. So, the Court of Appeals reverses, and then at the end of their decision, it's I, I, again, we're talking about a higher court looking at a lower court and deciding something in opposition to them. But then, you know, for the heck of it, let's just talk about their analysis and why it's wrong, which is really funny to me as a, a law nerd, where they basically say that the appellate division's analysis of the 2007 legislative changes is not the right analysis to make for this case. So, you know, the appellate division concluded that despite the awards differences, the legislative intent to achieve parity between the two types of awards manifested by the 2007 amendments required the awards also be treated similarly in this context, believing that the alternative holding would effectively perpetuate the very unfairness the legislature sought to eliminate. And when you think about this, a court is looking at legislative intent and extending it. And the Court of Appeals is saying, no, appellate division, you can't do that. This is not the same type of, of structure because the legislature has the opportunity to make schedule loss of use awards and ELEC awards equal. They have not chosen to do that. They're just trying to do a whole bunch of things that are before the governor's desk that uh, we've talked about in earlier podcasts, but they haven't done this. This is such a fundamental part of permanent disability, schedule loss of use versus LLEC. 
The other part of it that I find interesting is they talk about for a hundred years, there's been a distinction between the two, and you can't just change it based on the way you interpret uh, 2007 amendment to, to Yeah, I always I always think that's like a funny like tagline. Like everybody knows when these like you could research when these sections were enacted, but like when a court says more than 100 years ago, it's like you know you know that the appellate division is getting the proverbial spanking. I guess that their analysis was not correct. That there's no distinction uh, between or that there is a distinction between schedule and non-schedule. So you can't just make them equal. I would imagine if the appellate division decision were to stand, then schedule loss of use and non-schedule awards would then all of a sudden have these appellate division opinions that would start making them closer together without any, any legislative change. So now we have a case where uh, the law judge from 2018 is now vindicated and justified in 2022. So what where, where do we stand right now? Is the legislature, do you think the legislature could make a change to this type of thing to prevent this litigation? Or are we going just back to status quo? What are your thoughts there? I believe it's going to stay at the status quo. I believe they're focused more on the legislative changes that they proposed over the last year than something like this, which has a long-standing history. Yeah, it's, 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 you're probably right. Uh, you know, when we look at this Court of Appeals opinion, the uh, amicus briefs, were filed by the New York State Insurance Fund and the Injured Workers Bar Association, where you have these interested parties really spending time trying to create or defend case law, right? And whenever that occurs, I think that courts are more inclined to just keep decisions as is. You know, I think the appellate division took a step too far because there's no basis for calling a schedule loss of use award and an LLAC award the same. And the Court of Appeals really hammered this point home that they're, they're entirely different. But it begs the question, schedule loss of use and LLAC, why should they be different? You know, what if you have a major shoulder injury, but you only have a 45% schedule loss of use, meaning that you can't pursue outlet. But then you have a back strain that's healed, so to speak. But your vocational factors or your functional loss means that you have a 1% loss of wagering capacity. I've always thought this to be unfair, that it just gave claimants the choice of whether or not they would pursue one award or the other if they had schedule and non-schedule together. I, I just I think it's it's kind of odd that the body part dictates what type of award you get because there are many people claimants that we deal with every day that have these major knee injuries major shoulder injuries but they're not eligible for a loss of wagering capacity award yet someone gets a little ouchy in their neck and they're eligible for a, like a, a very long-standing award that's very hard to take credit for prior payments. It is somewhat arbitrary, but I think the legislature has tried to deal with that by uh, having certain special considerations uh, allow for classification in certain limited circumstances. Yeah, that's a good point. It's, it's you know, the legislature really hasn't bended that way. Uh, but who knows, maybe in a year or two, the United States Supreme Court will hear this decision. I'm just kidding. That would never happen. Uh, 
But I think it's been a good discussion, Jeremy. Uh, thanks for coming on to the show. Um, any final words for people looking at the, this decision to think about, you know, in terms of how to deal with uh, unrelated uh, death instances, uh, capped awards, any final thoughts for, for our listeners here today? Uh, just, I just say look at awards or look at any type of capped awards. If the claimant's going to die, look at it with a skeptical eye, be aggressive as you can. Right. If the claimant's going to die, then it's, you know, you, you're, you're really looking at it from a relationship point of view. Is this related to me or not? And then use what's in front of you to really dictate how you uh, handle it. I guess from that early period, from March of 2020 to October of 2022, there was a, a really, really weird uh, part of the law where we were in, where if that death happened between those two years, we had a big problem on our hands. But now that the Court of Appeals has come to the rescue and put some logical sense behind their decision, I think we're safe for now. All right, so for Jeremy Janis, my name is Christian Cisan reminding you to defend from day one.